0: Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour 3. Oh, my child brought me coffee and I love her. Welcome, it's Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be on the program, 877-973-7425. Always happy to have you. We've got to discuss Hunter Biden. If this were a Trump child, the National Press Corps would... Uh, be going to the doctor right now with priapism because it would have lasted for more than four hours. It's remarkable how they've managed to avoid as best they can telling us anything about Hunter Biden. But now uh, some outlets are starting to pay attention, including uh, Business Insider with the headline, Hunter Biden's gallery sold his art to a Democratic donor friend who Joe Biden named to a prestigious commission. On the campaign trail, President Joe Biden pledged there would be an absolute wall between his official duties and his family's private business interests. The Biden White House repeatedly made reference to that wall when responding to questions about the fledgling art career of Hunter Biden, the president's son. In 2021, when a New York art gallery debuted Hunter Biden's paintings with an asking price as high as $500,000, dollars The White House said his team had a process for carefully vetting buyers and that their identities were known only to the gallery and not to Hunter Biden himself. The messaging seemed to suggest that his art patrons came from a rarefied universe of collectors who had nothing to do with the hurly-burly of politics. Neither of those things has turned out to be the case. Hunter Biden did, in fact, learn the identity of two buyers, according to three people directly familiar with his own account of his art career. And one of those buyers is indeed someone who got a favor from the Biden White House. The timing of their purchase, however, is unknown. The buyer is Elizabeth Hirsch Neftali, a Los Angeles real estate investor and philanthropist. Hirsch Neftali is an influential California Democratic donor uh, who gave $13,414 to the Biden campaign, $29,700 to the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. In 2022, she hosted a fundraiser headlined by Kamala Harris. Insider has obtained internal documents from Hunter Biden's gallery showing that a single buyer purchased $875,000 worth of his art. The documents do not indicate the buyer's identity, which is unknown. In July 2022, eight months after Hunter Biden's first art opening, Joe Biden announced Hirsch Neftali's appointment to the Commission for the Preservation of America's Heritage Abroad. It's unclear whether Hirsch Neftali's purchase of Hunter Biden artwork occurred before or after the appointment. Membership on the commission is an unpaid position filled by campaign donors, family members, and political allies. There are questions. The drip, 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 drip. If this were the Trump family, would the media be asking more questions, less questions, or behaving the same? I would submit to you, I mean, you, you all know the answer, it's obvious. They would be crucifying the Trump administration as a bastion of corruption. This is from the Washington Free Beacon. In March 2015, Hunter Biden's cousin, Missy Owens, inquired about whether her mother could receive a presidential appointment, emails from a copy of his laptop show. I didn't know she wanted to do that. Um, Eric asked for one of these the day before the election in 2008. Hunter wrote back, you know better than me what any real and interesting appointments Let's go through the list with Steve and see what makes sense. I don't know how much 2016 and nepotism plays into it. The Eric in the emails appears to be Hunter Biden's longtime business associate, Eric Schwerin, who was appointed to the commission in 2015. President Biden has denied any speaking to his son about his overseas business dealings. Former White House Press Secretary Jen Sackey dismissed ethics concerns about Hunter's art career in 2021, saying that any offer out of the normal course would be rejected out of hand but he sold at least $1.3 million worth of his artwork. They said at the time he was a private citizen. Now it gets even worse. This is also from the Washington Free Beacon. Hunter Biden associate Devin Archer has testified before a federal grand jury regarding the Biden family and plans to be interviewed by the House Oversight Committee next week. Matthew Schwartz, who represents Archer, told the Washington Free Beacon that Archer has met with numerous investigators. Devin Archer believes strongly in the rule of law and the democratic system and is prepared to answer the committee's questions, just as he has already answered similar questions from a federal grand jury, the Department of Justice, and several other government agencies. According to the Post, Archer plans to tell the Oversight Committee he was with Hunter Biden on more than two dozen occasions when the embattled first son called his father during meetings with foreign business partners. The Post reported Archer will testify Hunter Biden called his dad on speakerphone during one meeting they had in December 2015 with the owner of Berezma Holdings, the Ukrainian energy company that paid Biden more than $80,000 a month and paid Archer also more than $80,000 a month. The report marks a major development in the Biden family saga. The president has denied even ever speaking with his son about his foreign business ventures. The report comes after Republicans released an FBI report that showed a confidential source told the FBI in 2020 that Burisma owner Mikola Zolkiewski claims he paid $10 million in bribes to Hunter and Joe Biden for political favors. Drip, 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 drip. And now from The Federalist. When the Pittsburgh FBI office briefed the Delaware U.S. Attorney's Office on evidence implicating Hunter and Joe Biden in a bribery scheme, the agents also told the Delaware team they had corroborated several aspects of the confidential human sources' claims, an individual familiar with the briefing told The Federalist. On Thursday, Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican of Iowa, released the FD1023 summary of a confidential human sources reporting that the Ukrainian oil and gas company Burisma paid Hunter and Joe Biden each $5 million in bribes so the then-vice president would protect Burisma from all kinds of problems. Those bribes were in addition to the more than $4 million in total paid to Hunter Biden and his business partner, Devin Archer, for sitting on Burisma's board of directors. The Federalist has now learned that the Pittsburgh FBI office has corroborated several details contained in the F.D. 1023 as part of the intake process that former Attorney General William Barr established before the election under the leadership of the Western District of Pennsylvania's then-U.S. Attorney Scott Brady. Significantly, in briefing the Delaware U.S. Attorney on the results of their office's screening of evidence related to Ukraine, the Pittsburgh FBI agents told the Delaware office they had corroborated multiple facts Included in the FD-1023, following the late June 2020 interview with the CHS, the Pittsburgh FBI office obtained travel records from the CHS, and those records confirmed the CHS had traveled to the locales disclosed in the FD-1023 during the relevant time. The trip included a late 2015, or early 2016 visit to Kiev, Ukraine, a trip a couple of months later to Vienna, Austria, and travel to London. Um, y'all, again, what if this were the Trump administration? The CHS is a confidential human source. And the confidential human source traveled to Ukraine, Austria, and the United Kingdom. The Pittsburgh FBI agent's job was to vet information to make sure it was not Russian disinformation. They vetted the information, they determined it was not Russian disinformation, and they forwarded it to the Delaware US attorney who really didn't seem to do a whole lot with it. We now have from multiple angles from Confidential human sources from Devin Archer, it seems through implication in press reports that the uh, Biden family was taking money from Burisma, not just Hunter Biden, but Joe Biden as well. We now have a pattern of Democratic political donors buying Hunter Biden's paintings and getting nominated and placed on commissions. What if this were Donald Trump? What if this were Donald Trump? We, we know how this would go if it were Donald Trump. We know how it would go if Eric or Don Jr. decided to become a painter and political donors started buying their paintings. I got a friend in Atlanta, Georgia. He's a brilliant, brilliant artist. His name is Steve Pinley. Steve Pinley paints very fast and he's absolutely brilliant. I've got multiple paintings of his in my house. He, he kindly gifted them to me. He's a generous soul. He is a wonderful, wonderful artist. And in multiple profiles, Steve Pinley has been maligned by progressives for the quality of his art, which is gorgeous artwork. He's hired to paint all over the world, but they've maligned him because he's a known conservative. He's painted for Donald Trump. He's painted for Rush Limbaugh. I know he's painted for Rush Limbaugh because I'm the one who gave Rush Limbaugh the Steve Pinley painting. He's painted for Kevin McCarthy. He's painted for Mike Lee and Ted Cruz and, and other Republicans, and he's maligned, and his artwork is brilliant. He is a brilliant artist and a wonderful person, and they maligned him. Hunter Biden's art kind of sucks. It's amateurish. And he sold over a million dollars and members of the press have praised the quality of Hunter Biden's paintings. That they, they can't bring themselves to say a nice thing about Steve Pinley, an award-winning artist who travels the world to paint for major corporations, the the uh, Georgia, uh, the College Football Hall of Fame, Coca-Cola, and others. That they, they can't bring themselves to say something nice about a guy like that. But Hunter Biden and his garbage art, they love it, and they can't question Joe Biden. They won't question Joe Biden. They won't question the family. There have actually been more questions raised in the press over Steve Pinley getting paintings to Republicans than there have been to to, uh, Hunter Biden. If you ever, by the way, get a chance to go to Atlanta, to the Atlanta History Museum, right down the street is Steve Pinley's um, studio, and it's it's just brilliant. He's got this one of Washington crossing the Delaware. I covet that painting relentlessly. It is a massive, massive painting of Washington crossing the Delaware, and it's beautiful. You'll not see anything like that from someone of the caliber of Hunter Biden, whose artwork is far inferior, but you'll see well far more praise of Hunter Biden because the media is there to protect the Bidens. The media is there to protect the left. The media is there to protect the Democrats. Democrats. The media is scared to death of the second coming of Donald Trump. They're scared of the Republicans. They're scared of of Ron DeSantis. My gosh, Nicole Wallace had a complete meltdown on television last night over Ron DeSantis. Listen to this. That was Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis defending but not taking a lick of responsibility for his state's outrageous, inhumane, whitewash new education standards. We broke the news here on Friday, specifically The requirement in Florida for middle school teachers there to instruct this quote, how slaves develop skills, which, in some instances, comma, could be applied for their personal benefit, end quote. Slavery. We know that in between the lines of DeSantis's claim that he quote wasn't involved in the disgraceful, appalling suggestion, despite his own law against wokeness. She's sick, she's afraid. She's appalled. She's sad. She's angry at Ron DeSantis. They're scared to death of Republicans winning in 2024. They got to circle the wagons around Biden. They got to circle the wagons around Hunter Biden. If this was Trump, they'd be all over it. It just shows you how the media has a vested interest so often, the editorial level of steering things away from the Democrats. It's why so few people trust them. They can't even be objective about Hunter Biden's artwork, let alone about where the money's coming from, who it's going to, and what other bribes are being paid, if any at all. They will not go there. They will not touch it. Just ask yourself, what if this was Trump? And you can realize just how dishonest the media has become. Did you know China has made it a priority to teach students financial literacy starting in preschool? Financial literacy isn't taught in our elementary schools and parents lack the resources to teach it at home. American kids are yet again being left behind. Now there's a great way for parents and grandparents to help the kids they love learn about finance. Thanks to The Sensibles and at bcs-kids.com. The Sensibles are a team of animated superheroes who help kids aged 6 to 12 develop smart money habits in a fun way bcs-kids.com was created to channel this multimedia resource to kids everywhere. Buy a subscription for your loved ones, and each month, they'll get a Sensible's Kit in the Mail with an entertaining DVD, comic book, and activities. Digital subscriptions are also available. They'll also get access to an interactive website with a library of lessons, fun activities, and more. Want 20% off the monthly subscription costs? Visit at bcs-kids.com, enter the promo code ERIC, my name, E-R-I-C-K. It's the sensible thing to do. Subscribe today at bcs-kids.com. Welcome, it's Eric Erickson here across the nation. The phone number, 877-973-7425. To the phones we go. Craig, you're up next. Welcome. Uh, hey, thank you. How are you? Good. How are you? Uh, probably better than I deserve, but good. You know, God is good. Um. If you remember in 2016 when it looked like Cruz would be the only one who had a chance of catching Trump, Mm -hmm. and and a last-ditch effort he uh, announced who his VP pick would be, which I thought was a good move, but he made two big mistakes. One, he waited too late in the game for it to make a difference. And two, instead of like Marco Rubio, he went with Princess Fiona. Yeah. And um, i just wondering, what if DeSantis did the same and, say, Four six weeks before the voting actually started, him and Tim Scott come out and said that it would be a DeSantis-Scott ticket that would help him consolidate some of the vote, and they could cover twice the ground with their message, and if he sure. did it before the voting started— yeah, you know, so a lot of people have gra- sort of gravitated towards a, a DeSantis Scott ticket. I, I know a lot of people who are there. The problem is Scott is going up in the polling and if he makes it to Iowa, there's no way he's going to say, well, uh, I'm, I'm going to settle for the number two slot here. Uh, there's so much ego in all of the dynamics at play here. Nobody wants to drop out. In fact, we've seen a lot of people get in because they were no longer intimidated by DeSantis. DeSantis by the way has begun uh, laying off campaign staff a third of the campaign gone today uh, that's breaking news happening here uh, the political reporting that the DeSantis team is is laying off a third of the staff the reason is because they spent so much out of the gate um, making a massive play they hired everyone they possibly could hire but now they um, well, They didn't shut everybody out, so he's resetting the campaign and going for more nimble nimble staff. This is um, from Politico. The cuts, which were confirmed by advisors, will amount to 38 jobs shed across an array of departments. They'll include the roughly 10 event planning positions that were announced several weeks ago. In addition to the recent departures of two senior DeSantis campaign aides, Dave Abrams and Tucker Obenshain, Following a top to bottom review of our organization, we've taken additional aggressive steps to streamline operations and put Ron DeSantis in the strongest position to win the primary, says Janera Peck. Governor DeSantis is going to lead the great American comeback. The expanded cuts are the latest sign. The team is pivoting to slim down operations amid concerns over finances. They raised $20 million during the second quarter, but it's spent a good chunk of the money. They're going to have to make cutbacks. Um, Ethan, Ethan Ilan is now the digital director has become the deputy campaign manager. My friend, Cody Hall, uh, who's an advisor to governor, Brian Kemp has been added as a senior communications advisor. So they're hiring a few people. They're shaking up the staff. They're trying to become more nimble. There's been growing donor frustration. And a lot of people who had been looking at DeSantis trying to look at, at, at Tim Scott, they're tired of the woke stuff. If I could give the DeSantis campaign, one piece of advice, it's stop talking about the woke stuff. Stop going on. On a conservative podcasts, start doing mainstream media interviews about the economy. Focus on the economy. Tell people you have a plan to get America working again. Focus on that. We know about the wokes. It's time to move on. Hello there. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation. The phone number is 877 973 7425. If you're new to the program, If you text my name, Eric, E-R-I-C-K, to the number 33777, so you text Eric, E-R-I-C-K, to 33777, I'm going to send you back a series of links pretty quickly, Uh, so you can follow me on social media, Instagram in particular. Um, You can get my daily email. You can get the podcast, the live stream, all that stuff. Now, I prefer you listen right here on this radio station. Um, because you get the breaking news live and timely here on the station and the weather and everything else. Um, but if you got to listen to delay or something, I get it. I want to make it able for you to access the show. I want to go off the beaten path because I, I, so confession confession is good for the soul. We've had a series of several slow news weeks. And instead of trying to get into all the intricacies on campaigns and the like, um, in politics, I I know conservative talk radio because I listen to conservative talk radio, and I find a lot of it iterative. Um, I find a lot of it derivative, and I find that it, it's very predictable. You know who's going to say what. You know the stories. Everything's going to be the outrage machine, and I just I'm fascinated by so much other stuff out there. And I find a lot of the dwelling on the minutia of Hunter Biden and the Biden crime family and and the January 6th stuff and, and on and on. I just, I find it boring. I don't find it very edifying. Uh, and I'm fascinated by some of the other cultural stories that are happening in America right now that then don't get attention on talk radio or in conservative spaces and stuff I feel very strongly is important and that we should think about. And so I was going to talk about Joe Biden. And then I, 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 there's a story out of Arizona about um, uh, a gay activist group that started a, a small school for trans kids with school choice. And I'm, I hopefully I can talk about that tomorrow. But I saw this story today. This is fresh in my head. And I want to talk about this because I'm fascinated by this as well. And we're hearing a lot of buzz about it you're going to keep hearing about llms now llms are not a business form so an llc is a limited liability company an llm is a large language model and there are some very famous large language models out there like for example chat gpt and open ai they are designing computer interface systems that seem very very smart and capable of doing things that other former uh, computer interfaces and uh, websites and searches browsers and things like that they can't do. So, for example, I'm in chat GPT right now, and I'm going to say, write me a five-line poem about cookie dough. That's it. Write me a five-line poem about cookie dough using iambic pentameter. So that's it. I've asked ChatGPT. Write me a five-line poem about cookie dough using iambic pentameter. In soft embrace, sweet cookie dough does mold, its tender touch, a joyous treat untold. Each morsel whispers secrets to the tongue, a dance of flavors neath the moonlight spun. Indulgence found, the heart and taste buds hold. There it is, a five-line poem about cookie dough using iambic pentameter. Now, if you don't know... What iambic pentameter is, if you don't remember your your class, it's a line of verse with five metrical feet, each consisting of one short syllable followed by one long syllable. For example, two households, both alike in dignity. So two households, both alike in dignity. Five metrical feet, one short, unstressed syllable, followed by one long syllable. There you go. I am at Pentameter. And ChatGPT can process it very quickly and got me what I wanted. And I can also go in and say, hey, explain to me what's going on in the world. Explain to me the rules of football. And and it'll break it down, and it'll be easy to understand. Here's what you have to know about large language models, though, including ChatGPT. These things are not sentient. They are not aware What a large language model does is it takes in copious information from the internet. It takes in books that have been scanned. It takes in... Uh, Wikipedia entries. It takes in everything across the internet. It, it gobbles it all up. And it does analysis on how words are used and how prepositional phrases are constructed. And it takes in basic grammar rules. And then it can process the information back to you in a way that you want it. But it's information that people have created that is then repackaged and reprocessed through a large language model, like a large amount of language to be able to put out what I want. And so it sounds very smart, but it's just a computer program. I say all of that to get to this piece of the Atlantic from Ross Anderson. The headline is, uh, does Sam Altman, Sam Altman is the creator of OpenAI that does ChatGPT, does Sam Altman know what he's creating? Listen to this, listen to this. Sam Altman told me at this point it might be prudent to try to actively develop an AI with true agency before the technology becomes too powerful in order to get more comfortable with it and develop intuitions for it if it's going to happen anyway. It was a chilling thought, but one that Turing Prize winner and former Google AI chief scientist Jeffrey Hinton seconded. We need to do empirical experiments on these things to try to escape control, Hinton told me. After they've taken over, it's too late to do experiments. Putting aside any near-term testing, the fulfillment of Altman's vision of the future will at some point require him or fellow travelers to build much more autonomous AIs. When OpenAI's co-founder and chief scientist, Ilya Sutskever and I discussed the possibility that OpenAI would develop a model with agency. He mentioned the bots the company had built to play Dota 2. They were localized to the video game world, Stutzkever told me, but they had to undertake complex missions. He was particularly impressed by their ability to work in concert. They seemed to communicate by telepathy, Sutskever said. Watching them had helped him imagine what a superintelligence might be like. You got that? He thinks they use telepathy, or it looked like they used telepathy. They had agency. So agency, let me talk about this in theological terms because it's easier to understand what they mean. I come from a Reformed Christian background, a Calvinist background, where we do not have free will per se. We have agency. Uh, What free will people, free will Christians mean is I get to determine what I wish to do uh, the, the reform faith would say that's agency—that our will is bound to sin, given the choice. Unless God acts on you, you're bound to sin and choose sin. But you do have agency in your life. You choose to get out of bed in the morning. You choose when to go to bed. You choose what to eat. You choose when to eat. You choose how to eat. You choose where to eat. You choose what to drive. You choose where you're driving to. You have agency. You have volition. You make these choices yourself, and they want to design a computer that can make those choices for itself, and they're breathing life into it. Um. This isn't life. It's not life. It is, in my mind, it's not a coincidence that the people who reject the divine believe they can create digital life. That the rise of the killer robot is upon us by people who do not believe in God. G.K. Chesterton, the Catholic philosopher, said The danger in not believing in God is not that you'll believe nothing, but that you'll believe anything. We're hearing more and more about people's obsession with artificial intelligence but they're not really creating artificial intelligence. They're creating things that seem to look like they're thinking, seem to look like they're operating with telepathy, but they're really not. They're processing zeros and ones. They're processing binary code. They're processing binary code created by a human being. And when they spit out the language, they're processing the language that was written by human beings that is put out by human beings that is processed by a computer and rearranged based on a computer program written by a human in order to put out something that looks new and unique and distinct, but is really just a word package of large language models repackaged and generated based on the prior works of others to become something that is iterative and new. But it's new, not in distinct ways, But it's new in an iteration of something someone already wrote. It's not a godlike power of humans to create this, and it's not a living being. It's designed to make it look like it's a living being. It's not going to reproduce itself. And you can unplug the machine. But you know where this is headed. We're going to get into ethical discussions of can you unplug the machine? It appears to be alive. We have no well, it's not breathing. It's not reproducing in living ways, but it's got a computer. I mean, is it any different than a computer virus taking over something else? How do you know? What's amazing to me, though, is at the end of the day, these secular people who do this somehow believe they can create a life on a computer and it must be protected and preserved. But God help the fetus in utero. You find bacteria on Mars, we must move heaven and earth to preserve that life. But the baby? No, not the baby. A computer that is not alive, that does not think, but is designed in such a way to give off the vibe that it does. We got to figure out ways to protect it, preserve it, expand it, and grow it, but... To heck with the baby. Nobody likes the babies. We can kill the babies, but the computer, we got to protect the computer. And it's all these people who haven't done anything. They've created a marvelous, intuitive, wonderful, fun-to-use computer program. And at the end of the day, it's still just a computer program. But the media and the programmers and the technologists have convinced themselves they are greater than they are, that they themselves have become gods, and they have created new life. And that new life is a string of ones and zeros on a computer. It cannot walk by itself. It cannot generally talk by itself. It does not eat. It does not procreate. It does none of these things, but somehow we're going to imbue it with life because it surprises us of our own genius that we've been able to pull this off. And somehow we decide we are now gods, the creators, and creation itself makes creation, which I don't think is so. But then the other thing creeps in. When you read the Quran, when you read the Bible, read the Old Testament, read the New Testament, the Creator is never scared of his creation. He may not like it, he may wanna get rid of it, he may wanna start over, but he's never scared of his creation but you read Frankenstein. Frankenstein's the doctor, not the monster. People mischaracterize that. Uh, Frankenstein's monster is Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein gets scared of the monster. The creators of the AI get scared of the AI. They're afraid of what the AI can do. They're afraid of their creation. God Almighty never gets scared of his creation. It's kind of an interesting juxtaposition there. An actual creator does not fear his creation, but a creation that creates is fearful of its creation, lest it be replaced in the creative order. We, I just think I'm fascinated by this topic because we are going to hear so much more about this and so much of the media is going to unreasonably be worshipful of what's being done here, as if these people are somehow gods. Interestingly enough, putting the media out of business, letting these things do more. But here's the catch: at the end of the day, if you read what Chat GPT writes, if you read what uh, the new ones by, by other companies are able to produce, all it's doing is rearranging the words and ideas of others. It comes across as colder. It comes across as less human. It comes across as not quite right. There's this thing called the uncanny valley that uh when you do digital art and it becomes too close to human, too close to human, it looks very it looks more unnatural than the cartoon. It looks freakishly off-putting, and it's the same with the text. We're starting to learn. We can recognize what Chat GPT is doing and out and outputting because it lacks humanity, it lacks soul, it lacks real creativity in what it's done. And yet All of these people, particularly secular atheists, are convinced they can create new life in the form of a computer program. And you and I are gonna have to remind ourselves over and over and over and over, and they should remind themselves, y'all, it's just a computer program. And if you don't like it, delete it or unplug it. But you don't have to create it or give it any sort of indwelling of life because it is not alive. You're not a god. None of us are. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Okay, this one's for y'all in Arizona. Um, I've, let's see, I've done dealt with Connecticut today. I've dealt with Ohio today. Now those of you out in Arizona. Uh, there is in Phoenix, they are developing what they're calling a queer micro school. So the Republicans in Arizona passed school choice a voucher program where parents will get money that the state would send to local schools. The parents instead will get it, and they can redirect it to schools of their choice. And so a group of uh, alphabet gang activists out there have started what they're calling a queer micro school. It'll be a safe place for gay and trans kids to go be educated instead of in the public schools of Arizona. And they'll use the voucher program to fund it. Uh, a, A gay rights group is starting it and activists in phoenix will help assist in the education and the kids who come will be in a safe space and i am all in favor of it one thousand percent i think if a parent has a child who is gay or trans and doesn't want them in the public school system and wants to put them in a safe space with other trans kids or gay kids so that they can get an education free of what they think might be bullying or something else, let them do it. This is the genius of school choice. I don't have to send my kid there. You don't have to send your kid there, but they get to send their kid there, and the free market works it all out. I think it's fantastic. It's a model for everyone, and it should show the left that school choice is nothing to be scared of. What's so interesting about this package is it's mostly religious parents who support school choice. And these stories about the school in Arizona are being used of see, see what happens if you give vouchers. Look what the gays are going to do. Yes, look at what the gay rights and the transgender activists are going to do. God bless them. I love them for coming up with this idea. It should show the innovation of the free market and school choice and the voucher program. You know what? We should allow the religious to do this as well. If you want to go to a school that shares your beliefs and use school cho- uh, vouchers to make a micro school just for your religion, you should be able to do it as well. But I have a suspicion that the activists who applaud the queer micro school, as they're calling it, won't be so happy with the religious micro school, will they? Hmm. Funny how that works. I just think that this shows how flexible voucher programs can be for education. And these kids who feel like they need to be in a safe space with other kids going through the same issues, can be together to get a good education. We should lovingly embrace this idea. There's not a single Christian listening to me right now who should be upset that gay rights activists are using uh, school voucher money to fund safe spaces for gay and trans kids. The only problem is that you as a religious Christian person should be able to do the same thing with your kids. And I suspect the other side won't want you to in the name of uh, separation of church and state. They should allow it. By the way, this is just another example of how innovative the voucher programs for school choice can be. And it's why every parent everywhere should support voucher programs so you can get your kid the best education for your child And Arizona is leading the way. Good for them. More of this, please. Please, more of this. More innovation. More vouchers. More school choice around the country, please.